0: So you're with your family on vacation in Wyoming, and you decide to go and tour the infamous Rollins prison. So you're on the tour through the prison. You know, it is spooky season after all. And you come across the big mural painted over the lunchroom in the now non-operational prison and you look at the the paintings of the people in the mural and you swear that regardless of where you are in the room the eyes of the people in the painting seem to follow you and so you know it gives you a spooky vibe it creeps you out a little bit and then after the tour, tour you look this up and you find out that it's called the Mona Lisa effect But you can't really find any information as to what actually causes the Mona Lisa effect. Well, let's talk about the science behind that. Welcome to The Science Behind That with Atticus Hamilton. Hello all you scientists, welcome on back to The Science Behind That podcast. I am your host Atticus Hamilton and on today's episode, as you heard from the intro, we're going to be talking about the Mona Lisa effect. Now, this idea, uh, came to me as per a request from one of you listeners out there, so, um, you know who you are, thank you very much for, uh, this suggestion, because this actually really is a good idea for an episode. Um, and, uh, you know, I threw a little personal experience in there, uh, in the intro, uh, because I think we all have experienced the Mona Lisa effect to some capacity, um, so this is, this, this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, remember, grab yourselves a nice steaming hot cup of coffee, add a little bit of maple syrup in it. And throughout the course of this episode, if you ever have any you know suggestions on ideas for future content or things that I can do better, uh, please feel free to send me an email at thesciencebt at gmail.com. Um, I love reading your emails. I love seeing the ideas that you guys come up with uh, because they're really good. Just like this episode was a suggestion from a listener. Um, I'd love to hear your suggestions as well. Um, Spotify used to let me do a poll thing under each episode where you could like submit a comment, but unfortunately now for some reason I can't see those comments um so if you have any comments or suggestions again just shoot me an email. Um so anyway, jumping into today's topic. Today's topic was um mm. is, is going to be very uh technical. Um because I was when I was doing the research for this, I was actually pretty surprised how um technical this this phenomenon actually is because There's two broad categories of the sciences that this involves. The first one is obviously psychology, right? Because our perception of the world is based on not just our neurophysiology, but our psychology. And then the other part has to do with the physics of ocular perception. Um, And that's where it gets a little complicated. Um, So there's a lot to unpack here. The first thing is that the Mona Lisa actually doesn't have the Mona Lisa effect. So, um, that's where the idea comes from, that's where the the name comes from, but the Mona Lisa painting itself actually doesn't follow, you know, the typical rules that we see with paintings that follow the Mona Lisa effect. However, paintings by an artist by the name of Rembrandt Harmanzun, Harmanzun, um, do. And he's actually, his work is actually very famous for almost every character, um, upholding the Mona Lisa effect, or, or causing the Mona Lisa effect, um, so he was a, uh, in, a, a Danish artist, he was born in 16, um, 06, and he died in 1669, um, or sorry, a Dutch Danish, what am I thinking of, he was a Dutch, um, artist and um he's he's famous for his art style and his characters that have haunting eyes that seem to follow you at whatever angle you're looking at the painting um however there is a limit where that effect does wear off and we're going to get right into that so to start here what actually is the definition of the mona lisa effect Well, the Mona Lisa effect is when a person depicted in a portrait does not become slanted even when observers move around the painting, and also the gaze of that person in the portrait seems to be fixed to the observer regardless of where they are. Now, um, to start this, we're going to have to begin very broadly with a bit of anatomy of how the eye works and, um, the, the, the layers of the eye and, um, then into the, the retina and, um, how that functions. So, uh, basically you have an eye, right? And there's a lot of different layers, you know, you have the cornea, um, you have the sclera, which is like the outer body of the eye, um, And um, you have the retina, which goes around the entire back inside of the eye. Um, And so light enters through the the, um, cornea, basically, into the anterior chamber, and it's through the pupil. The pupil is like an aperture on a camera that is able to open or close to let in more or less light. The lens then focuses that beam of light right back onto the retina. Um, in a very basic sense there's a lot of other uh, components of ocular anatomy um, but other if we get into that this uh, this episode would be very long and I'm limited to about 30 minutes Um, and so then what are the cells of the eye Uh, there's five types of neurons in the retina photoreceptors bipolar cells ganglion uh, or ganglion cells horizontal cells and amacrine cells Um, and in a very basic sense, photoreceptors are the ones that process the light into an electrical signal that is then transduced down to the optic nerve, which is then received by the occipital lobe of the brain. The rods um, are the photoreceptors that allow you to see in the dark and in dim light, Um, and cones are the ones that process color and make up the vast majority of your usual vision and so generally they they function together in tandem um now we can get a little more complex here uh in terms of what we talk about so basically of you your optic nerve fiber um and then that you have ganglial cells that come off of that optic nerve and those synapse with your bipolar neurons and the bipolar neurons then simulate or sim, simulate synapse with either your rod cells or your cone cells. And your cone cells—they don't really synapse with anything, but they they receive photons, right? For the most part, in a very basic sense. Um, and so that's how the transduction works of that s- signal. Um, but there's another part here of I anatomy and physiology that we need to talk about and that's a little more interactive for you guys so if you are listening to this and you're not driving your car or you're in a position where you can you know be a little distracted here i.e not riding a bike or something um, i want you guys listening to put your hands up in front of you making a triangle right so like your left hand over your right hand or your right hand over your left hand and focus on an object in the distance you want that object to be in the center of that triangle and then I want you to move that triangle to your eye Keep making sure to keep that object that you're focusing on in the center of the triangle in the center of your vision and then your hands are going to come back to a specific eye either your right or your left eye and that is your dominant eye. Now, you may be saying, well, Atticus, one, this is weird. I've never done this before. And two, why do I really care about this? Well, one, if you're in a shooting sport like archery or marksmanship, it's important for your eye dominance to ensure accuracy. But the other part of this is because we are going to be talking about something called binocular disparity. And what is binocular disparity? Well, simply put, binocular disparity is... The difference in the two images on the retina of each your of your right and your left eye, um, that's caused by the horizontal distance between your eyes. So another fun thing to do is focus on that same distant object and hold your thumb at the base of that object, and then close your right and your left eye, and you're gonna see your thumb move right into a different positional space in relation to that object you're focusing on. Now, your, your dominant eye, it shouldn't move much, right? If you center your thumb on like your doorknob, for example, and then you close your left eye, if your right eye dominant, your thumb isn't going to move. But if you close your right eye and you look at it with your left eye, then your thumb is going to move to the right. And vice versa if you're left eye dominant. And this is called binocular disparity. So, why do I bring this up? Because this is one of the two uh, causes of the Mona Lisa effect. So, basically, because of the horizontal, because of the fact that our eyes are separated from each other, our eyes perceive the world slightly differently than, um, than each other. And to make up for this, the brain has to compensate, right? Because if you're looking at the normal world, if you hold your thumb up on the doorknob, you see a blurry image of your thumb that's centered on the doorknob, right? So our our brain is compensating for the fact that our non-dominant eyes are going to be perceiving an image differently than the dominant eyes. Um, and, And this applies to a variety of other things, particularly depth perception, and, um, as it comes, as, as, as we talk about the Mona Lisa effect, depth perception becomes vitally important. So, um, well, what is the other component then, uh, of, you know, of causing the, uh, Mona Lisa effect? Well, the other aspect of it is called face-specific cues. So, ultimately... The Mona Lisa effect occurs from a conflict between face-specific clues and binocular disparity cues, and, um, we already talked about what binocular disparity cues are. Now, what are face-specific cues? Face-specific cues is a broad class of psychological techniques or phenomenon that occur, um, that our brains do in trying to perceive a human face. So, we have evolved to recognize patterns in everything, right, as humans. Um, Now, there's a lot of evolutionary biology behind that, but ultimately, we've evolved to uh, recognize patterns. And specifically, we are really good at recognizing faces, but unfortunately, if you have a painting that's a pretty good painting of a face, it's going to be very difficult for the human brain to recognize or to distinguish between a painted face and a real face and this is where the specific face specific cue of occlusion comes into play so occlusion is part of a group of cues called ordinal cues now ordinal cues basically convey info about the order of objects in depth right so binocular disparity is responsible for the most part for metric depth like your brain being able to say well this is farther away from that object by 10 meters but ordinal cues are that's the part of the brain that is able to say well that object is farther away or is behind that object a is behind object b i can't tell you what you know what the metric measurement is of how far behind object a object b is but object a is behind object b and that's called an ordinal cue occlusion is a type of ordinal cue and what is occlusion occlusion is distinct or distinguishes t junctions l junctions and binding contours and i know a lot of you are like i have no idea what any of that means that's that's fine a T-junction is basically an intersection, right? So you're driving down the road and you come to a stoplight, right? And the stoplight, you can either go right or left. That's a T-junction. An L-junction is where you can only turn right or left. And a binding contour is like the corner of a door frame. Now, what, what's the deal with th- these? Like, what does this mean? This is how our brain recognizes shapes, right? So think of a square, A square has a bunch of corners, right? Of doorframe corners, and those are called binding contours. So when we look at a square, our brain is saying, yes, that's an enclosed object composed of binding contours, which is translated to us, again, in our brain as it's a square. Now, what does this have anything to do with the Mona Lisa effect? What happens is, when we look at a painting that has been painted um, in a way that conveys the Mona Lisa effect, our brain struggles with being able to perceive a, the face as a painted face, and B, our brain struggles with the ability to perceive depth in the painting. If you look up um a lot of Mona Lisa effect paintings, not the Mona Lisa, you'll notice that they're blurred, and um the the face isn't blurred. But the background is blurred. Now, what is, what, what's the purpose of that? The purpose of blurring the background is to cause an inability of the brain to come up with a metric measurement of depth. So because the black ba- the background is slightly blurred, the brain can't say, oh, that is, that is measurably farther away than the subject. So what ends up happening? Well, occlusion and ordinal cues take over right ordinal cues just say well this object must be closer because it's in focus while the background is blurred and that conflicts with the brain's ability to constantly perceive the portrait as a portrait and so what happens is let's say you move 30 degrees to the left of the painting our brain is going to compensate for the fact that it can't tell what distance the the person in the painting is at by narrowing the face and making it look like even though you're 30 degrees to the left or right, it will make it look like it's still looking at you. That's why the face narrows. Because our brains are trying to compensate for the fact that it can't. they cannot perceive the, or calculate, basically, the specific distance that the subject in the painting is from the background or the foreground is from the background A. And B that we're looking at a face, and so in in a study in the uh, Journal of Vision, um, and this was translated to English from some other language, so there's a lot of uh, translational errors. I don't know where this is from, but um, anyway, um, basically they tried to researchers in this study tried to replicate. The Mona Lisa effect with 3D models uh, or 3D objects that were generated using CGI and um, they put a central point in the object as like an eye right a focusing eye and by blurring the background um, they were able to demonstrate that The face narrowing that happens with the Mona Lisa effect is caused by a breakdown of shape consistency and an inability of the brain to use occlusion, um, i.e. T-junctions, L-junctions, and binding contours, to determine where the end is and where the beginning is of a shape. Right, And so they found that rotating the models at an angle of uh, 30 degrees to the left or 30 degrees to the right Demonstrated or demonstrated um, the Mona Lisa effect in the participants, and overall, their results indicated that the Mona Lisa effect occurs from a conflict between face-specific cues and binocular disparity cues. So, to summarize, you know I, the example I gave in um, the intro. I, I have been to Rollins Prison. It's a a really cool area, um, but. There is a painting in there where it seems like all the eyes in the the characters in the painting are following you. Um, but as I think back on it, the background of those characters was, was slightly blurred. So the subjects were in the foreground, right? And the background was slightly blurred. And no matter where I was moving, it looked like the eyes were following me. And at the end of the day, it's because the brain struggles in with paintings like that. The brain struggles to be able to perceive what is a closed object and what isn't closed. The brain is unable to determine a metric amount of distance between the foreground and the background because of the blurring. And the brain's binocular disparity cues is causing significant issues where the right and the left eye are perceiving different images. So to compensate, the brain narrows the face and it makes it look centered in our vision. Hence, why, wherever you move around those paintings, it seems like the eyes are staring at you. And then, of course, the final part of that is that we as humans like like other human faces. And so that further compounds the effects, the conflict between the binocular disparity in the ordinal cues and the facial recognition disparity cues, And the brain is like, well, this is a person, so obviously the person is looking at us. And that is the Mona Lisa effect. Now, it it did take me a long time to find this literature. I also did find another paper that determined that the Mona Lisa effect functions up to around 70 degrees of picture slant. Past 70 degrees of picture slant, the effect seems to fall apart. And this study also determines that um, that uh, the Mona Lisa effect becomes stronger and stronger um, based on how more on how photorealistic the painting is and the degree of contrast between the subject in the foreground and the background. So ultimately. The Mona Lisa effect comes down to psychology to the psychology of perception and visual dynamics in how light is reflected in our eyes and how our eyes perceive perceive the world. And um, So I, I hope to my listener out there that Um, requested this episode I hope that helps I hope that um, that explains some things about why that phenomena occurs and what's happening there Um, I I had a fun time making this episode ladies and gentlemen I hope you enjoyed this episode I hope you thought the more interactive aspect of this episode was more fun than the usual content Um, and thank you very much for listening Have a great Friday. Have a fantastic weekend. I'll see you all on Monday when we talk about multitropic aquaculture. And remember, as always, ladies and gentlemen, stand up and question everything.